We're back, Empires of the Future, here in a new year, 2024. How many times do you think you will wrongfully write 2023 and when you're writing like dates this year? How many times do you think you'll do it? I have to write dates a lot more now that I'm I'm working in real estate, and so probably a lot. I do I, it. I think I'll do it through I think I'll do it through January, okay. but then I'll be done with it. So good, good plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I plan I'd say I plan on doing it till mid of January. That's just what'll happen. What about you? I do it. Once. Oh man, I do it. I, I've done okay this week. Um probably only done it wrong maybe once. I've noticed times that I've done it wrong. There's no hope for me at the end of 2023 when I'm sort of like putting dates on, you know, a worship service that I'm starting. I always do it wrong. When it's the year, I'm not going to be able to get the next year yeah. right. So I, so far, I'm, I'm doing all right this year. I guess I've done it wrong maybe once. So I don't know. I plan to stop right now. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, do you make any uh, New Year's resolutions for 2024? No. I mean, uh, so we got a new thing. We've been doing uh, this 200 Club is this mm-hmm. thing that we made up. Uh, just because, I, uh, long story short, I had to get under the platform at church, which is super tight. I mean, really tight. I can't get on my knees in it. And then I was so sore from doing that that I was ashamed of myself uh, because <laughs> since we finished our running season, I haven't done pretty much anything. And uh, so we've been doing 200 of any exercise and trying to do that three days a week. And I guess we're in week like two of that, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is week two, because we started at the new year. Right. Um, we both did it a little bit before the new year, but right. not not much. But uh, yeah, it's how's it been going for you, the 200 Club? I like Pretty it. Good. I like it. I, you know, yeah. to have the freedom to do 200 of whatever, and we, we have, I, you have a pull-up bar, which is cool. It's not like you're yeah. doing 200 of them, but to get to some of them, it yeah. is cool. So I've just been doing uh, push-ups and sit-ups and uh, squats mostly. Um, I don't have a whole lot of other options around my house, uh, but hey, that's... You know, I'm enjoying that. Yeah. For for people who maybe don't do pull-ups often or push-ups or sit-ups, um, they're one of those sort of exercises that I feel like I did a lot in high school. Right. And I say a lot. I don't know why, but sometimes you would just be doing push-ups or sit-ups or pull-ups. Um, and I used to, I feel like it was even four or five years ago, I used to be able to crank out 10 pull-ups. I could do, I could just give 30 push-ups mm-hmm. pretty easily and pretty much just like straight through, you know, um, which to some people may not be impressive to other people might sound really impressive, but to me that was like normal. And then when you proposed this, I was like, man, I haven't, haven't done any sort of, I don't know, calisthenic or body weight exercises like this in a long time. That sounds like a great way to not have to go to a gym, not have to have all kinds of equipment and things like that. And I did it for the first, the first day I did it. I like you, felt completely ashamed of myself because <laughs> right. I, I literally, you know, used to be able to do 30 pushups. No problem. I did 10 pushups and was like, Oh my goodness, yeah. what is going on here? Right. And, and it was even worse when I got to the pull-ups. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, um, I don't know what's happened to my body, but doing sit-ups just like hurts your backbone, you know? Oh, yeah. You're like tailbone. right on your tailbone. Yeah. It's yeah. awful. I'm getting blankets putting underneath my tailbone. <laughs> I hear pops in my, you know, like yeah. over and over again. In yeah, my... push-ups are a lot noisier now that I'm 31 <laughs> than they used to be. Yeah. yeah. But it's been good to do something, yeah. and uh, I am not having the soreness like before. And hey, hopefully this will get us through the winter until it gets warm enough again to run. <laughs> we can run. We can quit doing these lousy <laughs> right. 200 of all this crap. But yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. But it's been good. I didn't have, I didn't have any revolution, resolutions either. Um, I didn't have any revolutions either uh, for the new year, but uh, I was talking with a friend recently, uh, one Mr. Jacob Candler, a good friend of mine at our church, and he informed me, did you know that New Year's resolutions largely started with Jonathan Edwards? Really? Yes. He would he would make resolutions for himself. They weren't necessarily like centered around the new year, yeah. but just at various times he would, he would make a resolution for himself. Uh, but his resolutions were a lot different than the resolutions we make today or see. He would say things like, I resolve to um, to not act out of anger towards uh, anyone, um, you know, that I come into contact with, you yeah. know, whatever, like various things like that. Or or I, I resolve to uh, commit myself to reading the word um, to, to the point, like he, he wouldn't say like, read a paragraph every day. You know, he wouldn't really set like necessarily that kind of, of assignment on himself, but but to be so committed to the scriptures, uh, so as that he can see change being affected in his life by the word of God. 
which I think is a really cool way to approach it because it's not setting like a, a line, like I have to do it until I hit this line, then I'm done. Yeah. It's I want to examine my life and and try and meet these goals. And he would he created, I think, I think something like 70 resolutions for himself. Yeah. And then throughout his life, he would he would on like a weekly basis read over those resolutions and see how he's been doing in them. Yeah. And and try and maintain all of them, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, he's pretty well known as a journaler that he would write yeah. down, you know, how he his religious affections. How did he feel about the Lord? Does he did he, you know, was he reading the Bible? Was he praying and these sorts of things? And so that's one way to keep track of it. And I'm very surprised to hear that he is sort of the New Year's resolution guy. They've sort yeah. of fallen out of favor uh, to me among Christians. I think that uh, Christians yeah. view it as sort of a uh, practice of people who you know, are in the world, I think, has what I hear. I think they're fine as far as like, look, I mean, it, the Bible tells us that God's mercies are new every day. So you could start a, a new uh, idea every day mm-hmm. if you wanted based upon what God's word says, because you are given new mercies. He doesn't, his mercies don't run out. Uh, and so any any sense you have about when things are new, hey, take advantage of that, you know. Um, so I... I'm glad to hear that it is uh, tied yeah. to a well-known Christian like Jonathan Edwards because I think they're a pretty good idea. I mean, yeah. if, uh, don't um, I'm going to say it like this. I don't see us Christians as the kinds of people who are just like doing great at walking around going, I'm going to change how I do things. Like, look, changing your habits is hard. I don't yeah. see us being that much better at it than uh, anybody else necessarily. And so any of these, try any of the practices. I mean... In in terms of stuff like this, stuff that's hard, I say throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. Try yep. it, try anything uh, because, yeah, it's fine. Yep, I'm right there with you. Pretty cool. I didn't do it, though. Didn't have a New Year's resolution. <laughs> all that said, <laughs> neither of us have done it. So That's right. <laughs> well, we, but we're doing the 200. Yeah, we're doing, you know. Yeah. 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 There you go. Well, hey, you know, the 200 Club conversation does kind of fit in with what we're talking it about It is today. a masculine conversation, it isn't it? It is. It's a very masculine thing. Women could never do push-ups and pull-ups. Uh, I'm, <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. For all of our female listeners out there, I'm totally joking. Um, but no, we're, we're going to be talking today about this article um, that you sent to me. Tell me about this article. Right. So uh, there's a few websites that I will just check the website itself regularly because I think they put out good content. Um, the Gospel Coalition is one. Uh, First Things is one. Um, and I, not quite as often, but I do check mereorthodoxy.com sometimes. Um, and so this is an article from mereorthodoxy.com. It's called The Masculinity Pyramid. It's by Seth Trout. Um, December 5th, 2023 is when it was dated. And in a time, I, I do think one thing we're living through is, uh, it's like everybody feels this freedom to say, well, you don't have to do X. And there are limits on, <laughs> okay, what, what will you do then? Uh, we're just living in a time when it's like throw off all of the expectations. Uh, and in specifically in regard to masculinity and femininity, I think that's created a problem. Um, because in an age when, you know, yeah, a good thing is for the last 70 years or so, um, since the time of the sexual revolution, uh, women have been doing better at, say, schooling, at uh, getting jobs of every kind. Um, and we are seeing data now that we know that men are struggling in certain areas. And, and when you have a term thrown around all the time like toxic masculinity that can mean different things to different people, it is a valid question to say, well, what is non-toxic masculinity? What is healthy masculinity? Um, and so this... This article is about that, and it's about that in regards to the answer to four different questions. Uh, what is a man, and how is a man different from God, for instance, is the first question. And so it's worthwhile to talk about, because I do, uh, I think there is evidence that uh, that men really are struggling. Um, and there is evidence that these specifically male attributes, and I will use that because I think that uh, basic hostility and aggression is a male attribute mm-hmm. um and and sort of open hostility and open aggression is is a male attribute yeah. uh, women tend to be more crafty about how they handle aggression and that creates uh different kinds of problems um but we seem to uh not know what to do with the basic problems that men have and uh, are living in a time when it's very easy uh, to condemn 
masculinity altogether. Yeah. Um, when you have entire groups of people who are called uh, incels, involuntary celibates, people, young men who did not mean to, but are in a situation in their life where they have no idea how to get into a relationship, though they want to, um, that doesn't happen overnight. It's sort of like the homelessness crisis, a homelessness problem. is uh, You can't just address that in a simple, well, then why don't you give them a little apartment that's affordable? And it's like, well, that, that may not just solve all those problems. Right. Why don't you give them $100,000? Yeah, that also may not just solve all those problems. Uh, but we've landed here, and so I do think that um, defining what healthy masculinity is is a very good first step. And I think this is a great a simple article. It's a five-minute read, so um, we always encourage people to read these articles. That's why we bring them up. We think they're useful and are worth thinking through. Um, so go to mereorthodoxy.com and read this article called The Masculinity Pyramid. It's a five-minute read. Um, and so he says, he opens up and he says, uh, quote, we are in a masculinity crisis. Young men often feel as though they must choose between the way of Andrew Tate and the way of self-hating androgyny. In developing a response to the crisis, many begin with disciplines of sociology or biology, hoping to find a masculine or feminine vision in either history or zoology. Uh, so, didn't it falls to you to first tell us who is Andrew Tate? Oh, yeah. So, a Andrew Tate. I, I mean, I can't tell everything about him because, frankly, I'm not entirely sure how he originally entered the scene. Um, but I know he's a name that I began to see sort of popping up on, on various podcasts and... Um, he was doing YouTube interviews and even showing up on on talk shows like Pierce Morgan. Uh, I think he, he had an interview on there. Um, but he's a character that sort of gained a lot of prominence because uh, he was he was promoting he was promoting masculinity, but specifically he was promoting a specific form of masculinity. Um, and I think he he came on the scene and sort of took off because uh, he was for and promoting masculinity at a time when it was largely being sort of kicked to the curb or, or put down or, you know, whatever sort of descriptor you want to use. Um, this is, is coming, I think, sort of on the heels of the Me Too movement, um, which, you know, a lot we could say about that. But, but one thing that I think has definitely come out of that is a, a particular um, hostility toward disinterest in masculinity uh, and I think inappropriately mislabeling all forms of masculinity as toxic in general, taking a characteristic that is masculine and saying that that in and of itself is is toxic, right? Not only there, there were this this idea of toxic masculinity sort of changed into masculinity is toxic, uh, and I think Andrew Tate entered on the scene as an outspoken voice um, in favor of masculinity and men. But the reason why he's brought up in this article is because. He sort of embodied this, this unhealthy version of masculinity that is not masculinity in any sort of, I think, in a right or biblical sense, but a, a sort of almost unhinged masculinity yeah. um, of, um, you know, some good qualities such as, you know, strength and, um, and things, but mixed with a lot of bad qualities such as uh, lack of self-control. Um, and I think still it maintained a sort of, he, he, Andrew Tate, an inappropriate view of the relationship between men and women. Yeah. Uh, the nuclear family, that's sort of cast out in his worldview, the sort of one husband, one wife, uh, nuclear family, all of that is sort of done away with. So certain good aspects of masculinity are abandoned and others are heightened in the Andrew Tate version of masculinity. Right. And I think that's why he's brought up in this culture to say, you know, there are sort of two two ends of the spectrum, one being Andrew Tate, this kind of overly... Um, yeah, harsh and crash harsh, and boastful. aggressive, yeah. yeah, boastful, arrogant, all these kinds of things. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then on the other end is the sort of what, what he calls self-hating androgyny, which is that masculinity in and of itself is toxic and therefore anything that that smells of something manly or masculine should be done away with and sort of uprooted. Right. That if you're going to speak at all, you should apologize ahead of time that yeah. if you have any aggression in you, that that's something that's that's evil. Mm -hmm. um, because one of the questions in the background is, is there a good use for aggression? And and so, yeah, I mean, what we're going to track here is, yes, there is that, that aggression is needed. 
though, some of some of this, um, we can say that some of this is just a result of the change in the way our economy works, that we heard for years that we're moving to an information economy. And having lived through like the 90s, for instance, you heard that and it was kind of like, okay, that just means sort of more work, more money to go around. Um, we could only send so many jobs overseas and only eliminate so many jobs before all of a sudden there was no more physical labor to be done and to where we ended up in a situation to where look one simple fact i want to point to is that uh if if you think about an education system where what is optimal and ideal is people sitting quietly in a room for eight hours a day it's a simple fact that the biology that women have it is easier on the whole on average for a woman to do that than it for it is for a man especially a young man who is being filled uh not just with energy uh but with testosterone which drives certain behaviors and we're seeing that all the way i mean where we are now in college is that on the whole in in america uh women account for 60 percent of those who uh, will graduate college and uh, unlike, I mean, this this is creating problems all across the board, which we have talked about in other episodes, but I'll just point to a couple of things so you can see that this this problem is driving other problems. Because, for instance, while a man who graduate, co- graduates college is not committed to then uh, marry a woman who graduates college, uh, in, in an educational sense, uh, men are happy to marry down. It is, it is in fact, just not a consideration right. generally for them. Right. One, one strange fact to know is that, in, in general, a woman who has a bachelor's degree will not marry down, educationally speaking or financially speaking. Right. Uh, a woman who has a master's degree will not marry down, uh, educationally speaking or financially speaking. And that's creating uh, a problem. The, the numbers alone are a problem. And then when you add this, you can see that um, the lack of motivation of these young men that the fact that the system is not appealing to them nor is they, are they able to seemingly adjust to the way the system is now which is hey put off whatever uh, desires you might have for a long time and endure this situation that might not feel uh, desirable for you yeah. now look uh, i know there's gonna be a lot of conversations about like, well that's not like that's entirely desirable to women either yeah sure um but then the range of adjustment is uh maybe not equal uh, yeah. and and I don't think it is yeah um, and so that's where we land right now and we really are in a situation to where um, it's not just an educational problem it is an economic problem that the jobs are just not there and they don't look like they're coming back um, and so being in this situation it makes it hard for young men to know what to do and uh, I think the reasonable goal that we have here is to just outline a path of what is reasonable uh, to expect as a young man. And, and then what what will you need to do with uh, the the feelings that you have, the, the, the emotions that you have and the, the drives that you have? What does God expect? Um, and, and really, uh, one thing that's happening in our time is that um, verses about... Uh, not loving the world, don't love the world or anything in the world. Um, it's it's like for a while, sort of the world played nice with Christianity, that some of what was happening in the world in terms of uh, the world, meaning the system that opposes God, uh, the the desires for fortune and fame and power and pleasure seem to play a little nicer than, than now, where it, it is uh, completely destructive to the Christian view of the world in a lot of ways. The way, the way our world is working is opposed to the Christian worldview now in a lot of ways. And so highlighting a path forward for men is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Entering into this conversation of, of masculinity and sort of, I think what, what, um, what Seth Trout does here is he, he really does give a, a helpful framework for, uh, for answering the question of what should masculinity look like? What is it supposed to be? How can we attain it in a right way and, and avoid sort of, Toxic, toxic, excuse me, toxic masculinity, and he—he—it's he, called the the masculinity pyramid because he sort of creates this pyramid of uh, of understanding masculinity and basically how to achieve it. What are the what are the fundamental ingredients? And he frames it in the form of what are the fundamental questions that need to be answered, and they need to be answered in the proper order. Just like a pyramid right. uh, must be strongest and widest at its base—that's the most important layer. 
and every layer above that uh, can only be established upon that layer uh, if it all is to stand. Um, he does that with some of these questions and sort of creating this this pyramid of masculinity. And I think it's it'll be helpful for us, hopefully, to to everyone listening to to see sort of where he goes. And he does approach us from a biblical Christian worldview, yeah, uh, which you know. I think I think you can be masculine uh, even apart from Christianity. However, I do think there will always be something lacking uh, in masculinity if it is separated from uh, from understanding who we are and who God is and who we are in light of that. Right. It's um, it's strange for me to think back on my life um, growing up through the eighties. Um, you've seen these guys, but I can't tell you how clear it was in the eighties that it's like who is masculine. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, I mean, like the, the Jean-Claude Van Damme. I mean, it was just a string of aggressive fighting people. And to say, okay, if I wanted to be even clear about how is the world changing its game, uh, this is not what's held up anymore. Yeah. And I'm not looking back at that going, oh, how sad. I'm saying the world changes the way it plays its game. For a while, it will hold up this person. And then after a while, I'll go, how could you ever hold up that person? Obviously, this has nothing to do with that. Right. Um, and so it's it, this has changed in our day. But why don't you tell us what the four questions are before we dig deep into them? Yep, the four questions that he he asks and says, basically, you need to you need to have the answer to each one of these in this order, in order for the next one to to you know fall into place correctly and have a firm uh, sort of pyramid. Uh, the first question is, how is man different from God? The second question is, how is man different from an animal? The third question is, how is man different from a boy? And the fourth is, how is man different from a woman? Now, those questions might sound strange just as we read them off, but as we get into it and you see sort of what approach he's taking, I think it'll become clear the purpose of these questions and and why the answer matters. Uh, And he starts with the question of how man is different from God. And he says this in the article, he says, man is a creature, not creator. Unlike God, man is limited, finite, boundaried, under authority, frail, and needy. Man is under the mighty hand of God. And then here's the the key point. Humility is the virtue provoked by this difference. When a man meaningfully accepts the fact that he is not God, when he sits with this reality and lets it shape him, this is the beginning of humility. The very form of man is humble. What a place to start. I think this is a great place to start. I agree with him, understanding who we are, uh, and how we are different from God, that he created us, we are his creature, and therefore we are uh, are bound to, um, if we are to flourish in life, live according to the design that he, to the design that he put in place. Um, but what this means immediately, first and foremost, is it is it means humility, mm-hmm. that man is to be humble. That's the first ingredient that, uh, that the author Seth Trout says is needed in the case of, of a right understanding of masculinity. Um, and it's not a... I mean, I don't. We're kind of going to contrast most of this with Andrew Tate because he was presented at the beginning of the article, and I think he does present a sort of picture for us of what what can go wrong on that on that end of masculinity. Uh, Yeah, and I think we would be okay with saying that is toxic masculinity. There is such a thing. Oh, I would be okay. There is such a thing as toxic masculinity, and there's just one instance of what we can point to. And yes, there is also toxic femininity. Sure. Our I would accept Aristotle's definition of virtue that it is a mean between two extremes uh, that you are, if you're defining courage, for instance, on the one side of courage, you have cowardice where it's like, I won't face any challenge. And on the other side of uh, courage is foolhardiness, right? Where you will just fight every fight you've been around. I mean, I have, I have young boys, as you, as do you. And one thing that you get out of them is wanting to fight about everything. <laughs> to argue, they will argue about everything, yeah. incessantly. I mean, it. No, no, that's not blue. It's it's light blue, which is not blue. Well, it's really it's blue though. You know, it's like, I mean, they will just argue back and forth about anything, and that's the other side of courage. Uh, that is the other error that you can make, and this is why it's not easy to just arrive at virtue. Is because if it were as simple as Hey, don't be a coward. Well, no, the other side of that is fighting every battle, beating your head against every wall that you see, and all that's going to end you up with is a broken head. Yeah. Um, and so that we can accept that. But it, we live in a strange world that says no certain 
since we can say in the past certain things were bad, therefore everything that's happening in that realm is bad right now. It's like, no, that's another oversimplification. Mm-hmm. And so we don't accept that. Yep. Yeah, I think too many men, I think I think Andrew Tate is, is a, one example, um, essentially don't see themselves as uh, as owing to, to anyone or or anything, any any sort of conformity or allegiance or anything like that. Um, a form of toxic masculinity, max, toxic masculinity is one where where you become king, you become supreme, you become primary in your, in your own world, and that can take on different forms. But certainly, um, in each of those forms, when you're lacking uh, the humility that comes with this understanding of recognizing that we were created by God, who created us intentionally and for a purpose and with a particular design, certainly one that has been distorted by the fall, mm-hmm. uh, but one that we can still look to and understand and, and follow in, um, then your masculinity is always going to be distorted. If you start from pride, you're going to end up with something that looks very different from what a man should look like. Right. And so, um, I mean, this is one difference that you can see very clearly is that without the Christian worldview, it is, it's tough to even to define pride, much less to see it in yourself. Um, because pride is this excessive focus on self. It is the the focus on self to the detriment of every other and refusal to see flaws in oneself. Yeah. Uh, it is self-righteousness. It, yeah. it is looking out going, all right, let's set the terms before I even do this. I'm right. So how is everybody else wrong? That yeah. is how pride looks at the world. And in, in this regard, though, I mean, there are a lot of things, even if you are outside of Christ, where um, you will find uh, that you get in arguments with people, and in your pride you'll say, well, they were clearly wrong about everything. Is that rational? That every argument you have, all the other people are completely wrong? You get hints that maybe something more is going on there, but it's just very hard to follow up on that. Now, uh, at a certain point, uh, one story I have about this, at a certain point, um, when you see the way the Bible defines sin, so the Bible defines sin as falling short of the mark, missing the mark. Um, I remember there was a period of uh, learning to walk with God where I realized that um, sin is taking it upon yourself to go, well, I know how much I should get of everything. No, you don't. You actually, if you're a Christian, you're going to say, God, you give me how much I need of everything, and I will learn to live with that. I can't define my own existence and my own terms and what I should get. And then you further find about sin that uh, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins, that there are sins of omission as well as commission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I did think, though, it's like, okay, but there is a fundamental problem that I am, I am, uh, I am literally uh, ignorant of, of certain things. There's just knowledge that I don't have. Um, and why is that? Well, that's not necessarily a result of my sin, but it is a result of the fact that I'm a small little being. Yeah. You know, I arose from a certain set of people at a certain time. I had nothing to say about this. I was a baby. I didn't take care of myself. I didn't get here through my own strength. That we are very small little things. And this is a fact of reality as well. But it's one that's not at all pleasant to realize that we started out utterly dependent. We'll likely end our lives utterly dependent. Yeah. And that that's how it is for us. That's the kind of creature that we are. And this is all tied up in being humble because humility is not just deciding to think lowly of yourself humility is seeing yourself as you really are and this is how we really are but to go all the way i was just listening this morning to a sermon by uh, tim keller talking about wisdom and talking about how look if you don't have a rock solid understanding that with god you are loved he knows you he knows who you really are knows what you're really like and he loves you anyway and nothing you can do is going to change that you will not be able to look at yourself and see your flaws to their core because it is awful to see your flaws all the way to their core because they go down deep and they they have something to say about uh, the darkness that is in you, about uh, about what kinds of things you've done that are inexcusable. Mm-hmm. But if you can see yourself and know yourself and know that God really does love you and that nothing's going to change that, you can actually look at yourself and go, "Wow, there are some things about me that uh, there is no excuse for, and that I, I I wish were not there." And then he goes, "Yeah, I speak to people like yeah. you who who realize these sorts of things, and in fact, I've helped you to get here. Now, are you ready to go forward from here?" Uh, that's huge. That that is that is a turning point because all of a sudden you do stop looking for your hope inside yourself right. and you realize you're going to need somebody else to help you. And that is, that is how good for you humility can be because we are that small. Yep. 
uh, we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves we're not that small, but we really are. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think he, he it, it moves then from there, and we see how these begin to build on one another. Yeah. And um, so before we do, though, I mean, oh, like, yeah. the things that he adds about that, he says, so if you see that as your first turning point, be humble. Well, that's going to entail then being curious, being considerate, being teachable. Because right. if you are humble, if you realize I'm a small little thing, and I, I mean, again, I'm going to quote him again. My, my friend Robert Hathaway put out on Facebook is like the quote of his wall that every man I know is in some way my superior, and for this I am grateful. That is as good a quote as I've ever run into because it's true. It's absolutely true that you can learn something from everybody that you meet. Yeah. So go about the business of learning it. Yeah. Uh, that is how we ought to live. Yeah. I think one of the ways we see this, or I don't know, have you ever had to apologize to your, to your children? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually something that people have, I've heard people say like, no, no, you shouldn't, you need to be the parent. You know, it's like, I don't yeah. know. I, I think you ought to apologize to your children. I think you should. I don't think it's a right version of masculinity as a father for my son to see mm-hmm. uh, where he sees me as one who, um, who never admits wrongdoing. Because he certainly, regardless of what you think, he certainly is not seeing you as someone who does not commit wrongdoing, right. who is not wrong. Right. Uh, you can try and hide that all you want, but you can't. Um, but what you are teaching him instead is that the masculinity that you portray and what it looks like to be a man uh, in, in, your eye, in your mind is one who, who refuses to ever admit wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really unhealthy. And, and it's not a right way to, to raise up a child, to train, mm-hmm. train a young man for... For godliness or even for life in general, uh-huh. it's just not a healthy way to, to train them. I think that's one way in particular. It's also very humbling. It's a very humbling yes. thing to have to yes. to have to, as I have many times, um, come to a a two year old, a four year old, and say, "Hey, daddy, sorry. Yep. I, I shouldn't have have reacted Lost that way. Temper. I shouldn't. Yeah, that's oftentimes what it's about: losing my temper, or um, you know, whatever the case might be. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and it is it is further more humbling when they throw their arms around you and say it's okay, I forgive you. Oh, like, oh gosh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it is. It's so sweet, though. Yeah, yeah. It's so sweet, and I think, yeah, it is humbling. We can move on from that, but um, so from there, he moves on to the next question: How is man different from an animal? What's the what's sort of the answer he gives there? What a really powerful question for our time. Um, yeah where we are living through this weird elevation of animals and then refusing to define uh, humanity, um, because this is what we're getting at here, is that all the way down to the, the nature of our being, uh, what is our difference? And so he says, quote, animals are governed by instincts and appetites, not morality and not by God. And so man can be governed by greater and lesser loves and can delay gratification, right? And so um, animals, we... It, this is mentioned in mere Christianity that, uh, that we have things in common with animals, that we do share instincts, uh, we share desires. Um, and though the, what is the difference? And this is what a convicting issue when you go, oh, animals are governed by their instincts. They yeah. can't help but be governed by their instincts. Like, how are we doing with that? Do yeah. we govern our instincts or do our instincts govern us? Yeah. Um, because we know as humans that we can and should be doing better, but are we? Um, and, and so that's a fundamental difference. Yeah. And, and, and so you, you have at the bottom of the pyramid humility as he lays mm-hmm, down first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next layer of the pillar, and that's the answer to the question, how is man different from God? Mm-hmm. The next layer of the pillar, uh, pyramid right above humility uh, would be discipline. And that is the answer to the question, what makes man different from animal? Yeah. Primarily, the difference is that of, of discipline, that we as human beings, like you said, are not merely governed by our, our bare instincts the way animals are, but we have the ability, and not only the, the ability, but the calling also mm-hmm. uh, to restrain those things to to act even at times against our base desires and quote-unquote instincts mm-hmm. in order for a greater purpose um and this is one again which are going to bring back to the contrast between this form of masculinity and one of andrew tate who has multiple wives and is is known for um being with multiple women and and showing really little to no restraint at all on uh, sexual desire. Well, and the way he treats them, he treats them like dirt. And then he says, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. You know, I, you tell them what you want them to do and then they either do it or you can tell them to get out of here. I mean, it's using people is 
He, I mean, to be fair, he would probably argue that he doesn't treat them like dirt, but that he cares for, especially his wives, his yeah. multiple wives, but he does care for them. Um, and, and in his mind, he's thinking, I provide for them. Um, they have everything they need. They have money and food and, and plenty of it because he's very wealthy, right? Um, but we would look at that and say, but even still for you, what they are is a commodity. Yeah. You are viewing them as a thing. Um, you are not viewing them in, in light of who they are as an image bearer of God. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is that someone like Andrew Tate or a, I mean, this is not unique to Andrew Tate, a host of other men uh, in our culture today are unwilling to restrain any base desires or instinct of this nature for the purpose of, of anything else. Uh, in other words, what, what God calls us to is that he calls us to not to say that sex and sexuality is bad and evil, but that it is given a particular context that requires restraint, that requires a deny, a self-denial. It requires discipline yeah. and a rejection of discipline in this area or in many other areas. Yeah. This is one easy one to point to. <clears throat> but in a rejection of discipline in, in any of these areas is a rejection of part of what masculinity is. Yeah. It is discipline. And I've heard people, men, uh, try and excuse this away, excuse away a need for discipline in this area by saying, well, I'm just not wired that way. It's not the way I'm wired. It's mm-hmm. it's unnatural, right? It's kind of like, well, in a sense, it's unnatural in that it's against your instincts and your desires, but that doesn't mean that it's not right. Right, and that... Uh... Having given way to that in some corners, uh, these men are now betrayed by that because yeah. uh, if it, it is unnatural if you feel aggression to not punch everybody that you feel aggressive against. Yeah. But we all the time know that we have to restrain our natural urges. It's just that we've sort of trained ourselves, speaking as a culture as a whole, we sort of trained ourselves to go, well, we should let what is quote unquote natural happen. It's like, no, we don't. We don't do that. No. You don't give way to whatever thought flies through your mind. And it doesn't matter if the same thought flies through your mind 10 times. You don't, you don't have some timer where you go, well, that's the 10th time. I have to do it now. Yeah. That's, not how, that's not how the world works. But because we've sort of lied to ourselves in smaller ways, all of a sudden now there are these sort of communities or even... And that's the thing about the internet is this word community is yeah. thrown around. But what it is is just people who are willing to write to each other, yes, you're right absent of actually knowing someone that is not an indicator of anything to, to be able to say to somebody completely in the void of the internet. I agree with those words that you strung together right there. That doesn't mean anything. Words mean something in context. And when you are sharing space with someone, that is a whole nother thing. Uh, if you've never been in an online video game, you would be shocked at the things people will say to you. When they are playing a game against you online, you know, if I saw you in real life, I would kill you. You should go kill mm. yourself. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, mm. I mean, the, just it, the most offensive things you can think of come out. Why? Well, because there's no consequences. Because this is disembodied speech, right? Which is not real speech, right? Uh, speech is embodied. It comes with a body, and it comes with consequences. And we're living through this experiment of tying ourselves all to other people through this strange online uh, connection, uh, judging what other people are doing through social media and other things, and it's creating all kinds of... They're not new problems, but they are strange new versions of old problems that we can't adequately judge. And so, yes, the second level here, it it does require self-control, discipline, and even self-denial, which yeah. which is the next level where s- some of the desires that you have in your heart, you're going to have to say, I, I'm going to give a hard no to that, and I don't know if I'll be ever, ever, I will ever be able to give it a yes. Yeah. So for instance, to any young man who might be listening, if you are 16 and unmarried and you feel sexual desire, what God is telling you is wait until marriage to express that sexual desire. Well, that might be four years. That might be eight years. Yes, I I know, uh, but God knows what you should be doing with your body, with yourself. His ways are best. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's hard. I yeah. know it is. It is very hard, but he's right. Yep. The world is lying to you. 
And, and you can know for certain that whatever the story, if you could distill down all the messages, which I don't think you could, but if you could distill it down to some random uh, vague version of what is sort of the current do this, what is the advice right now? You can be certain that in 25 years, it'll be completely different because this is the way the world's game is played is learn to play this game right now and it'll have its drawbacks and its problems. But in 25 years, it'll be a whole different game so that you'll feel bad about what you used to do because it is endless blame with no redemption. Uh, there's no winning there. There's yeah. no winning. And so the answer is self-control and discipline and even self-denial dependent on the grace and the mercy of God who does give good things. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So when he wants to give you good gifts, he will. And until then, it is perfectly fine for you to pray and to say to God, I don't understand what you're doing. I'm even, I'm frustrated about it. Mm-hmm. That's that. Yes, the, the, people tell themselves they can't pray. These are the these are the sort of things you should be praying about. You just yeah. you're acting like you should be uh, much calmer in your prayers. I think <laughs> yeah. no, say it. God can handle it. Yeah, part of what it means to grow into maturity um, is to accept the reality that you have to do hard things. Yep, and that's what we're saying here. Like, yeah, discipline is is hard. Uh, but it is a part of what separates us from the animals. Yeah. Um, the question maybe that would be good to, to use for self-examination is, uh, in my discipline today, have I lived more according to an image bearer of God or more according to uh, a, a base animal? You yeah. know, I think there's times whenever, if I'm honest with myself, I'd say, no, I live today as though I uh, I were no different than an animal, just yeah. giving into yeah. whatever my whims and desires were. And that's a that's a, an unhealthy, but worse than that, it's a sinful way to live. Yeah. Um, so... Um, so the third one, how is a man different from a boy? How is a man different from a boy? He says uh, this, does Seth Trout, uh, quote, boys need guardians because they cannot take care of themselves and cannot be trusted to make wise choices. Mm. Yeah, this is true. Uh, this, is, this is the definition of what parenting is, is that you determine for your children uh, what they ought to be eating, uh, when they ought to get up, when they ought to go to sleep, how much rest time they need, when they need naps, how much game time they need. Well, because children need parameters, and they need you to discipline them into those parameters. Uh, otherwise, they become more animalistic. Yeah, they, they just are governed. How much sugar do I eat? How much is available? I yeah. mean, they're just governed by base instincts. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's... So, so boys need guardians. Men do not need guardians. Men can govern themselves. Yeah. That is a difference. Yeah. So, so the idea here being responsibility. So you have humility at the at the base of the pyramid, then discipline, and then this third layer that he's adding on three or four uh, is that of responsibility. That unlike children uh, who who require and need care, who need being watched over, who are unable to make choices for themselves, uh, to grow into mature manhood, masculinity means to, rather than always needing care, to be providing care, to be taking on responsibility for others around you. Well, for yourself first, certainly, yeah. but then even beyond that, to others around you is kind of the way he, he he makes the point. Like, first and foremost, there's a lot of guys, and I say guys because I, I think they are lacking heavily in a lot of these areas, but who are unable and or unwilling to take any responsibility even for themselves. Yeah. And you see that in the way they live and the way they spend their time and, and all these things, but also in the fact that for for many young men, their time is spent utterly committed to themselves mm-hmm. um, without any care for or thoughts concerning other people. They are, uh, they are largely consumed uh, with activities and, and things that benefit themselves, that are for themselves, that are self-focused, which again, there's a lot of lacking humility there. We see how these all work together, right? So you have to have a base of humility uh, and then move on from there to to discipline. But then that should result in the next step that you ought to be pursuing, and that is and that is responsibility. Uh, and we can think of a few ways in which not only as men we're to be responsible for ourselves, but also for others. And he lays out some of these examples. He says that, uh, he said, men take responsibility for their sin. Boys blame their circumstances. Uh, men are uh, responsible stewards of the faith. Boys are not. Once a man has cultivated the ability to be responsible for himself, he then is, is tasked with broadening his scope by taking responsibility or care for others, especially his household, his church, and his work. Yeah. A man who has not yet become responsible flounders like Peter Pan. Yeah. He says that's that's end quote. Um, 
And I think this is a, I think this is true. And I think it's a problem with, with a lot of so-called men in our culture today, a lot of what masculinity is and that responsibility uh, for yourself. But then for the next step, which is oftentimes missed, even if the first, first one is obtained responsibility for others is, is lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, one easy avenue of this, and I think right in biblical one, is fatherhood, right? Uh, I also know full well there are plenty of plenty of men and, and women, husbands and wives, who would love to have children, um, but have not, right? Um, but if a man doesn't have children, I don't think that he is then exempt from these levels of responsibility. There are plenty of other ways in which to exert responsibility and care for um, other people who need cared for, who yeah. need watched over. Um, there are plenty of avenues and that could be something like, for example, just to get very practical, like a, a volunteer program, like something like big brother or, uh, or boys and girls club, or we have here in town, the dream center, uh, that's always in need of, of volunteers for people and especially men, uh, to come right. and, and help act as role models and offer care and support for, uh, for children yeah. as they need it. Yeah. I mean, and that could be a coach, uh, it could be somebody who helped with youth group. You could think back on the people who helped you when you were young and, and ask yourself if you're providing that for other people. Um, I want to mention on this one that uh, in the Old Testament, uh, a, a, a man became a man when he answered for his own decisions economically, when he's able to pay for his own food. Uh, and, and, and it's valid in our day that if if you are paying for your own needs, whether that's food and shelter, uh, whether you're paying for your own car insurance, what, whatever you actually use, are you paying your way on that? It's strange uh, because I think this is not often talked about in the context of the church. Um, but the definition of man, it was economic. If you answer for your own needs, then you're a man. And so, you know, in a, in a day when we've talked a lot about, uh, uh, extended adolescence and people who still do live with their parents, you know, look, if you're not answering for your own decisions, if you're not, if, if frankly you are a burden on someone else, well, they are the man and, and your mother and father would still be your mother and father in that situation. Uh, that if you want to be grown and a fully mature man, then you take responsibility mm-hmm. for your decisions, that the consequences for those fall completely on you, whether those are uh, things for your flourishing, such as, like we talk about, buying food, but look, uh, things like if you do something wrong, do you pay that fine? Uh, who, who's who's taking care of that for you? So all that fits in there together. Yeah. The final one, which I would say by now, uh, everybody is knows is coming, is how is a man different from a woman? And this one's a little different because... Uh, looks, women, similarly to men, are called to be humble and disciplined and responsible. Yeah. Uh, but are men and women indistinguishable in biblical terms? No, they're not. Uh, there is a difference yeah. between a man and a woman, uh, speaking in terms of the Bible. Uh, look, men are called in the Word of God to look like Christ and, and it, it is a lower relationship, as you see there in the book of Ephesians, that uh, God wanted to have an example of who Jesus is and who the church is. And so in terms of what is a marriage, God saw the relationship with Christ and the church first. And then he said, I want to see that modeled in what is a powerful human relationship we're going to create the institution of marriage where the man is expected to model that sacrifice and the woman is expected to model what the church does, which is submission. And this is why at Christian weddings we talk about the book of Ephesians and we reference this. And then love and respect come out of this. And this is God's uh, expected plan for how marriage ought to work to point to Christ and the church, which are first. And so that is one difference in this. But we also affirm biological differences. Yep. Um, I did not remember the number. Did you remember uh, the different uh, amount of testosterone that men had have on average versus women? 
Oh man, I did not remember he, that it was this. He gave, uh, yeah, he gave pronounced. those numbers. I actually have it here in front of me. He says that uh, men have, on average, fifteen to 20, tw- 20 times the amount of testosterone that women have. Right. So, so yes, it's foolish if somebody's out there saying women don't have testosterone. Well, it's, that's that's false. But uh, men have fifteen to twenty times more testosterone on average. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know anything about uh, testosterone, uh, it drives physical strength. First of all, yeah. Um, it it makes for a stronger skeleton. It makes for more muscle mass. Um, and so, and, and I mean, uh, one thing, even as I know, uh, since we, you and I have talked about it, that, uh, some in our families have been trying to do different kinds of pushups. Well, look, it's a simple fact, biologically speaking, the fact that men have more upper body strength means men are, it, it is easier for men in general to do things like pushups. Yeah. Um, it's also what's behind that very strange internet, uh, meme or this, uh, video that you might see about how, uh, a man will put his head, he'll be, bend over at a 90 degree angle, put his head against a wall and try to pick up a, a chair and then stand up. Have you seen this? No, I haven't seen this. Uh, men can't do it, generally uh, speaking, almost at all. But women can. And it's all about the fact that when a man picks up a chair, because of the way men are shaped, there's too much weight distributed there. <laughs> but the center of gravity of a woman is just different. And yeah. so they pick up a chair and they can just stand right up. And so this, uh, it's a really funny thing to see, but yeah. and it completely perplexes people. But we don't, we, we are conditioned to think that there's such little difference between men and women. Um, but this is one uh, that is plain, biologically speaking, to start with, that for some reason, uh, we just don't talk about very much. Yeah. So this, this is where, you know, he gets to the top of the pyramid now. We've gone from humility as the base, discipline on top of humility, responsibility on top of that. And then at the top of the pyramid, he does include uh, strength, yeah. and and I think we, we could also throw in there things like aggression um, and these kinds of things. Um, and you mentioned this near the beginning, but we are not saying that when we when we look at someone like Andrew Tate, that his aggression, his uh, his strength, his fortitude, which he has all of those things, yeah. has all of those things. We are not saying that those things are what make him. Uh, toxic in his masculinity because we are here saying now no that is important to being a man strength mm-hmm. aggression this this high level of testosterone that god has given us he's given us for a purpose and those things are not bad things mm-hmm. the problem is if you have those things and and um especially sort of build and grow in those areas apart from the rest of the pyramid sort of the base that's been laid then it will turn into something toxic something destructive rather yeah. than something good and right and healthy so there are right forms. In fact, he even says in the article um, such a thing as holy aggression. He says holy aggression can look like contending, building, initiating, producing, planting, repenting, and confronting. Yeah. Uh, it is begetting in a wide variety of ways as a faithful image of the Father. Uh, and, and so we would not say that aggression, strength, um, resolve, determination, all of these kinds of things— are bad things or that they make toxic mas- masculinity. We would say these things on their own or to the without the other necessary aspects, indeed more important aspects of masculinity as far as laid down as a base. If you don't have that base, then it will turn into an unhealthy form of toxic masculinity in this way. But here's the thing. He, he kind of describes how there are two, and I, I agree with this, and I think it's great that he, he makes the point in the article, because there are really two main kinds of toxic, quote-unquote, masculinity. Mm-hmm. There is the Andrew Tate. Mm-hmm. That is basically the strength and the aggression um, apart from the humility and the uh, the discipline and, and responsibility and things, these kinds of things. Um, and that is a form of toxic masculinity. It's the strength without the necessary framework and, and grounding for that. But then you can also have a masculinity that is absent of any of the of the strength. Uh, one that is, uh, as he says, probably um, as much as, if not more, of a problem in most evangelical churches today, and that is a mascul a, a masculinity that is devoid of any sort of aggression or resolve or strength, but one that is entirely passive uh, and impotent. Yeah, and that is equally as destructive to society as a masculinity that is heavy on the strength and aggression without the humility and the other aspects. Right. And I think it's good that he points this out 
Because in order for us to rightly understand masculinity, it is not to rob it of of the aggression and of the strength, but it is to take these things together and have them rightly ordered yeah. and and directed in such a way that they they produce rather than just destroy right. or protect rather than just attack. Uh, there's these things that are are that they require a form of strength and aggression and and this kind of masculinity. Uh, and therefore, they're they're needed, but they need to be properly ordered. That's the point that he's kind of getting at in the article. None of these things that we have um, can be done away with. If you do away with one, you will fall into this error. If you do away with another one, you will fall into this error. Right. Uh, and and we see the different errors in in different ways. Yeah, a, a man or a young man that has no direction is frustrated, and. Uh, a man was made for a purpose, made to accomplish, uh, and and made to accomplish what? All those things you outline, contending and building and initiating and producing and planting and, and repenting and confronting and a, a whole lot of other activities. This is why throughout history, uh, you find that a lot of the problem cases in civilizations have been young men without anything to do. Uh, because if you don't have good things for them to do they come up with bad things to do like breaking into homes or just breaking stuff uh stealing things whole host of things and historically what has the answer been historically the answer to that has been we need to marry off these young men because literally it is a historical fact that young women civilize young men mm. that has been the answer historically and so we are having problems because that stuff is not happening uh, and, and then our problems go deeper when we don't have any definitions and we deny simple facts like that there are differences between young men and young women. Now, look, uh, something that we've mentioned in previous podcasts is that um, when young women have problems, as some are having, often uh, women will turn towards guilt and blame themselves and develop things like eating disorders or other kinds right. of problems Men will typically either A, get frustrated and then break things, or B, get frustrated and just completely detach. Yeah. Shut down. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's just different in that regard. It's yet another area. Men are different from women when they're going right. Men are different from women when they're going wrong. Uh, we are not helping ourselves by just denying that this is how this all works. And so this is useful, this whole article, um, because this accounts for simple facts. Like, look, if you look this up, you will find who commits the lion's share of violent crimes, of sex crimes. It is men. Well, why? Well, because uh, men sin in a certain way. Men are more prone to certain kinds of evil, and women are more prone to certain kinds of evil. Yes, there is an overlap, but there is also a vast difference. And you're just lying to yourself. Right. You don't want to see this fact that's been present. And and it is it is the the data is available for anyone anyone who wants to look that up. Um, and so th this article has been an effort into looking into okay, so what do what do we do about this, and and what what is a, a basic roadmap for young men, uh, and and it is true that aggression can be channeled in a positive way, and it should be. Uh, Jesus is a great example. Jesus is the great example of what a man should look like, and Jesus is. If you think, if your idea in your mind is that Jesus is an example of a man who is never uh, aggressive, uh, you're going to need to take a look at what uh, actually happens in the Gospels. Right. It's just not true. And what happens in Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, that's the, the funny thing is that you're right. People oftentimes think of Jesus in this way as this sort of um, sissified, you know, Pantene hair model. Um, who is just passive and, and never would raise a finger, never do anything like that. Um, and we do see a lot of a lot in Christ of him being gentle and lowly at heart. Right. And, and so, and, and we, I don't hope, I hope no, where he, have we said that um, men should not be gentle. Uh, right. I mean, so strength is right. for service. Jesus has been the model for this entire right. discussion. And I would say that 
for every time we have pointed to uh, an Andrew Tate as a negative, we should point to Christ as the positive. Exactly. Uh, because that is that is actually, we want to emphasize Christ much more than any negative that we could have brought up. I think that's a, a good thing to, to sort of redirect us towards, because I, I think it could get lost there, that... that uh, yeah, for every time we we consider the the negative, and there are there are bad examples of plenty. I mean, right? Yeah, we here we are on... in this week of a, a Jeffrey Epstein oh, a yeah. list being revealed about uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who's another very negative model of what yeah. masculinity, what building a man who bought an island so he could build one of the worst sorts of enterprises you can imagine in in running some sort of uh, child sex ring out of there. Yeah. I mean, men are made to build. That is exactly the kind of corruption that can happen when men go off track. Yeah, but Christ himself being the model, one who right. was who was the epitome of right biblical masculinity in every way, who was just as ready to, uh, to fashion a whip and drive out money changers out of the temple as he was to, to uh, deal with and, and interact with the little children, uh, and who one who was prepared to bear the responsibility uh, in every way to the point of laying down his very life for the sake of those whom whom he loved and who yeah. he cared for, um, yeah. And think of think of in in the Gospels how he takes different kinds of men and teaches them different lessons yeah. in ways that we would not necessarily. I mean, I don't know of anybody who could predict what he did with Peter, but think about <laughs> Thomas. How we would think he would say like, "No, I I don't have to show you anything." But he's, he actually does show up and appear to Thomas. Yeah. And says, "Oh, you want you you wanted to touch the holes? Then go yeah. right ahead." Uh, Jesus is not predictable. But he gives us lessons in how to redeem different kinds right. of people, right. men and women, uh, and and that is uh, we who uh, who are so bold as to try to follow him in calling people to repentance and calling them to life in him. That is the those are the sorts of instances we want to look at, uh, and then pray for some amount of wisdom to try to then walk uh, like that. Yeah. That's right. I mean, this, the same the same Jesus who was uh, was calling the Pharisees a generation of vipers mm-hmm. and whitewashed tombs and all, all of this, you know, harsh, firm language that was difficult for them to hear was the same one who would pick up the the ear of of one who'd come to arrest him who'd been cut off by one of his own mm-hmm. disciples and and kindly put it back on. You know, mm-hmm. um, we see a full bodied picture of what right masculine and masculinity should look like when we look to Christ. And so, man, thank you for taking us in that direction. Uh, that is where we should ultimately conclude that that is what's right, is to look to him as our example of of right manhood and masculinity. I just want to conclude with um, the, the two last lines in the, in the article. Well, I'm going to say three last lines, I guess. I think we're really good um, that he concludes with. He says, and this is, he wants to sort of make the point. He says, abuse is rampant, evil, and not to be taken lightly. He says, churches must discipline abusers, yet male abdication is also everywhere. Mm-hmm. I know more people in counseling because of their father's abdication, that is, rejecting his responsibilities and duties, uh, than his abuse. In other words, I'll say that again. I know more people in counseling because of their father's abdication than his abuse. And then he concludes with this, like an ox without a yoke, testosterone without humility, discipline, and responsibility is a liability. But when we take his yoke, that is Christ's yoke, testosterone can be an asset, not a toxin. And I think that, you know, I, I have frankly never heard of this guy before, uh, this Seth, Strout, uh, Seth Trout. Yeah, me neither. Um, but I read this article and I was like, this guy seems to have really offered some helpful insights and, and a sort of right way of thinking and ordering and, and identifying some of the issues mm-hmm. uh, and giving a helpful framework for how to live in, in a right way as a man and pursue a right masculinity that looks more like Christ than like any good or bad example we see in the world. Yeah. You know, there are good examples in the world um, and in our lives. Like you said, when you think about if you grew up in the church, think about who it is that's influenced you. Or if you didn't, think about men in your life who you look back to fondly and, and the good qualities they had. And um, I would contend that the qualities that were most beneficial to you and in, in helping you to see uh, what right manhood should be were those that look most like what Christ looked like. Um, but the thing is, with our culture today, right examples of masculinity are oftentimes not what are brought to the front and what are elevated. It's the wrong personas that are elevated as um, as the examples. They're, they're what are set before us, and so they're 
kind of prominent and can be a temptation to want to emulate as what is the right form of masculinity, especially in a culture where, like I said, by and large, masculinity has faced a lot of pushback in general and been entirely labeled as toxic. When we see figures who are who are for masculinity, um, even if it's a toxic version of it, you can see and understand why people are sometimes drawn to that. But we need to rightly say, no, we want to we want to look for something better. We want to look to someone better, and that is Christ. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave it there for this week. Thank you all for listening. This has been Empires of the Future. And we'll see you in the future.